I'll draw your attention to verse 12 of number 16. We began looking at this text two weeks ago. We are most familiar with the account of the ground opening up and Korah and Dathan and Abiram being swallowed up and everything that belonged to them because of their rebellion. But a phrase caught my eye this morning. It's found in verse number 12. When Moses heard about this rebellion, when Moses heard about this uprising, he sent to call Dathan and Abiram, verse number 12, the sons of Eliab. But they responded in a very interesting way. Look at the words, five words. We will not come up. There are only two kinds of professing Christians beneath this tent today. There were only two kinds of Israelites on that day. There were those who would not come up and there were those who could not come down. And I wonder this morning, which one are you? There's nothing in between. You are either down and refusing to come up or you are up and refusing to come down. Which one is it? You say, well, I'm kind of in the middle. No, you're down. Well, I've got one foot up and one foot down. Impossible. You're either up following the Lord Jesus because he is up or you are down dragging your heels, refusing. Which one are you? The first crowd is clearly described in our text in Numbers And we'll look at the book of Nehemiah for the second crowd in a little moment. Let's talk about those who will not come up. Can I just take a little bit of liberty this morning and say that most professing Christians are living so far beneath what God has for them today. Most who call themselves children of the living God are living so far below what Jesus has died to give them what Christ has called them to live. And maybe even this morning, while you sit beneath this tent, you know in your own heart, you feel the conviction already that you are not living what you should live and how you should live. And can I tell you the worst part about this crowd? The worst part about this crowd is not that they're living so far below what they could live, but the worst part is they refuse to come up. The worst part is that they're down living so far below what Jesus has called them to live, and they refuse to rise to the calling that he's given them. Can I ask you this morning, is this you? Why? Why do we live in such darkness? Why do we continue in such endless sorrow and despair? Why do we continue so far below, knowing that we're not what we should be? I believe it's found in our text. I believe there are three reasons why we live so far below what God has for us. Look at the text with me, please. Abiram, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, said, we will not come up. And in verse 13, they explain why they will not come up. Is it a small thing? They answer back. I can imagine with as much attitude as they possibly could muster. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey? Now, if, if I'm not mistaken, 
They were headed to a land that flowed with milk and honey. They never got there. So what they were saying was that where they left Egypt, that they reckoned to be a land flowing with milk and honey. The number one reason why you are living so far below what Jesus has for you is because you think this world has something that it does not have. You think this world is something more than it actually is. Thou hast brought us up out of a land that floweth with milk and honey. They were reckoning in their minds that Egypt was a land, the promised land, you could say. And they could not be more mistaken. One of the greatest problems in the Christian church today is that God's people love the world. They had forgotten about the chains of slavery and bondage. They had forgotten about the sting of the whip. They had forgotten about the cruel taskmasters and the hopelessness and despair. In Exodus chapter 1, I remind you in verse number 14, the Verse 13, the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage. Would you look here for just a moment? If you've never been born again, then Satan, the God of this world, has made your life bitter with cruel and hard bondage. That's why so many are living in depression and despair and hopelessness. And that's why so many turn to drugs and alcohol and entertainment looking for something. And they're in chains, in bondage. It's only when the Lord Jesus opens our eyes. It's only when God, by His Spirit, commands life to be breathed into your soul. It's only then that you begin to realize, hold on a moment, I've lived my life in chains. Paul says that if our gospel be hid... It is hid to them that are lost in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that don't believe. Would you look here for just a moment? If, if today you are not believing, if today you've not been born again, then I'm telling you with as much sincerity and kindness as I can, you are blind. You are blind. And the God of this world has blinded you and he wants you to be so blind that you don't even see the chains on your wrists and the chains on your soul. He doesn't want you to see the hand wrapped around your throat, squeezing the life out of you. But the moment that God by His Spirit quickens your soul, your spirit, is the moment your eyes are opened. The moment that the chains fall off. Because Jesus came to set the captive free. He he came to open the prison doors. He came to preach and declare liberty to the captive. So then why is it that God's people are thinking, pining for the chains of old? Why is it that God's people are always looking back over their shoulder at the world that they left? Why is it that God's people pine for such a dark place and think that it has something to do with milk and honey? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that you were dead? John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, we know that the whole world lieth in wickedness. 
1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Perhaps this morning the reason you're not living where you could live and should live is because you're still looking back at the world you left behind. At the life you left behind. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, be not conformed to this world, but rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is the first reason that God's people live so far below what God has for them. And this is the first reason that God's people will not come up. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to think with me for just a moment. How many of you know, how many of you today know that there is more to the Christian life than what you're living now? Do you know it? Do you know you're missing something? Do you know there's another level that you've never reached? There's a deeper walk that you've never experienced, a closer intimacy that you've never had? then why aren't you there? First reason is perhaps because you love the world. I don't know what it is that the world has offered you that has wrapped its tentacles around your throat, that has blinded you once again, but this world is not the promised land. This world has nothing to offer. That's the first reason they would not come up. The second reason, look at it. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? The second reason God's people do not live where they should and could live is because they misunderstand the journey. The second things get difficult in the Christian life. The moment you stub your toe on a stone in the way, the moment that somebody trips you up or the moment a storm comes by, we all of a sudden begin to think that God's trying to kill us. And then we begin second guessing. Maybe I should have never come this way. I wasn't expecting such turbulence. I wasn't expecting such a life. And because things aren't as smooth as butter, then we're ready to second guess our decision to follow Jesus. I wonder if you misunderstood the journey. Yes, the journey is a blessed journey, but it's rough. The path is narrow. The way seems long and lonely. It's full of many dangers. Through many dangers, toils and snares, I have already come. But don't forget about the rest of it. It was by His grace. We've traveled thus far and grace will lead me home. Yes, it's tough, and yes, it's challenging, and yes, it gets dark, and yes, it is lonely, but He is with us. Don't misunderstand the journey. I remind you in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we looked at it just a couple of days ago. Paul says that all things are for your sake. Even the difficulty, even this, this list of things troubled on every side, yet not distressed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in our body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Yes, but it's all for your sake. 
It's all for your good. It's all for the glory of God. That through the thanksgiving of many, the scripture said, that through the abundance of grace, might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God. Paul says something interesting in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians in verse number 3. Listen to what he says. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. The more you suffer, the more grace, the more of the comfort of God's spirit you experience. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and your salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Meaning there's a work in suffering. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not be ignorant, brethren. We would not have you be ignorant of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever hated life? But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we in ourselves, but in God, which raises the dead. You know what he said? I was so low. I was so down by this journey that I wanted to die. But he said there was a purpose for that. So that I would trust the one who could raise the dead. You know what he said? I'm happy. He goes on and, 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 and later on in the, in the 12th chapter. I'm happy to be persecuted. I'm happy to be afflicted because I know that in my affliction, in my lowest state, that the power of God will visit me. I'm happy to be almost dead so that I can experience the power of God that raises the dead. Do you look at it like that? Or do you look at it like, I wish I never came this far. I'd like to go back. They misunderstood the journey. Remember what Joseph said to his brethren, his brethren that sold him as slaves. Do you remember that? Uh, Little Joseph, the teenage lad with his coat of many colors, his brothers chucked him in a pit waited till a band of merchants came by, then they sold their own brother for just a few pieces of silver. And there he was for years in slavery, wondering what has God forsaken me? And at the end of his life, he looked his brothers in the eyes and he said something very interesting. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. But here's a group of men who are living below. And because they're living so far below, they cannot see that God means it for good. They cannot comprehend that all of this is for our sake. That we might rise. That we might be brought to another level in our Christian walk. And so they remain loving the world, complaining about their circumstances, misunderstanding the trials and tribulations that have come their way. And one other reason that they're living so far below. And number 16, they misjudged God's character. 
You brought us out here, Moses, to kill us. You say, well, hold on a moment. Don't you mean they misjudged God, Moses' character? No, no, no. Because if you remember in verse number 11, the rebellion was against the Lord. The rebellion is against God. And they thought that God wanted to kill them. They misunderstood God. How many times have you said, God, why have you done this to me? Why are you letting this happen? You've misunderstood the character of God. You've misunderstood who he is and what he is accomplishing and what he uses to accomplish his work and his will. You've forgotten that God is on the throne, not Satan. You've forgotten that God is almighty, that God is sovereign, not the government, not Satan, but God, King of kings and Lord of lords. You've forgotten that the government shall rest upon his shoulders and shall know no end. You've forgotten. So, I told you at the beginning, you're either someone who says, I'm down here and I will not come up. Now notice, they didn't say I cannot come up. They didn't say I cannot come up. I meet some Christians who say, I I would like to live a victorious Christian life, but I can't do it. Wrong. You won't. Because God has given you everything you need. By His Spirit and through His Word, He's given you everything you need to live the victorious Christian life, but you won't. I will not. I will. I refuse. An act of my will. An act of volition. I will not go up. And some of you today are living down here and you refuse to live up here where he's called you to live. Now the other group is the group I want to be associated with. I don't want to be down here saying, Lord, I know I should be up there, but I'm not coming. I want to be with Moses and I want to be with Aaron who say, I'm up here. I see you down there. No matter what you say, I cannot come down to you. Reminds me of Nehemiah. Look at it with me. Nehemiah chapter 6. There he was sent by God to do a great work. And here come the enemies. By the way, we're living in a day and age. If you haven't figured it out by now, we are surrounded by enemies trying to pull you down, trying to drag you down further than you've ever been before, trying to stop you, trying to stop the work of God in you, trying to keep you from maturing and stepping up. And some of you are letting yourself be dragged back down. It came to pass in Nehemiah chapter 6 verse 1. It came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein. Though at the time I had not set up the doors upon the gates. That Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me saying, come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. I cannot come down. One group said, I will not come up. And another group said, I cannot come down. When you start to walk with the Lord Jesus, when we start to walk as we should walk next to his side, when we begin to follow his leading and his guiding, to be actively involved in his work, we will begin to recognize there's something greater than my comfort, something greater than my itty-bitty, 
teeny insignificant little life, there's something far greater to be involved in. And then you'll begin to recognize there's nothing in this world worth distracting me from that work. And you, like Nehemiah and Moses, will say, I cannot come down. But I wonder this morning in closing, what is it that keeps a man up? What is it that keeps a man up there? What's it, what is it that keeps a man from being pulled down? Because I've lived my life a lot like a roller coaster. Have you been there before? Up one day, rejoicing, shouting, praising God. Down the next day, despairing life. You ever been there before? I hate it. I hate the roller coaster of a Christian life. That's not the way it should be. Now, your circumstances may change, but you want to remain up here. Walking with Jesus. Walking, holding tightly to the comforter's hand. How do we do it? A couple of very interesting observations. What kept Nehemiah, what kept Moses up there? Moses, one, while two and a half million were down there. What kept him up there all by himself? Interesting. We will not come up. I, singular, cannot come down. It begins with this. You recognizing your walk is personal. Your walk is singular. And I don't care if the entire rest of the congregation, the entire rest of Christianity, the entire rest of the world sinks down. By the grace of God, I cannot come down. I and by the way, if you cannot make that stance, you can't help anybody else come up. So buckle in, strap in, chain yourself in, tie yourself, whatever you got to do, but you make sure that you say, like Nehemiah, I cannot come down. He understood something. He understood he had a recognition of the work that he was called to. Now, can I tell you this morning, if you are laboring for the Lord Jesus, you will not have time to pine for this world. If you are in the work of the Lord, you will not have time to think about what you've left behind. You will not have time to be engaged with the rubbish and the drivel of the world if you are engaged in the work of God. And Nehemiah said, look, I am doing a great work. Now, don't misunderstand. He wasn't saying, I'm doing a really good work. No, what he was saying is the work that I've been called to is a great work because it's his work. It's not my work. It is his work. In fact, he calls it the work of the Lord. He talks about how this was a work wrought of God. And he refused to come down. I remind you of what our Savior told us in John chapter 9. Uh, they were always trying to get Jesus to come down, weren't they? Even when he was on the cross. Save yourself. Come on down. And I can just about imagine he whispered, I cannot come down. John chapter 9 and verse number 4, the Lord Jesus says, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. I must work because time is running out. An 88-year-old man stood up here last week and said, God, let me live because there's more work to be done. And here we are in our 20s and 30s saying, I wish I could get some more time to enjoy myself. I must work. Not I must go back. To the world, the land flowing with milk and honey. I must work. A sense of responsibility. A sense of duty. A sense of accountability. Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me. It's his work. He sent me because there's coming a day when no man can work. Very soon. And can I tell you, every devil, every demon that grabs a hold of your toes and your ankles and your knees and tries to pull you down 
kick him in the teeth if you have to, but make sure you do not come down. Because there's a work that we've been called to do that nobody else can do. So do it. Grit your teeth, strap in, and like Nehemiah say, I cannot come down. Something interesting. Lest you imagine that we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. In verse number 9 of Nehemiah 6, uh, while these men are trying to get Nehemiah different tactics, distraction, deceit, fear, all of these things. In verse number 9, Nehemiah says they made us all afraid, saying their hands shall be weakened from the word that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Look here. Do you want to stay up? There was a dependence on God. You will never live up here like you should live unless you recognize, but by the grace of God. Strengthen our hands, O God. When you get up in the morning, strengthen my hands, God. There's a work for me to do that I cannot do unless you strengthen my hands. Keep me up here, Lord. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day. Most of us say new heights I'm losing every day. Are you depending upon God? This is his work. And the Bible says in verse 16 that the enemies, watch this, I love this about Nehemiah, because they continued, because Nehemiah refused to come down, the work was finished. Jesus said before, before he died, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Would you look here for a second? Have you finished the work that he's given you to do? Have you finished the work he's given you to do? Have you even begun to do the work he's given you to do? May we, like the Savior, say, I must work. I cannot come down until my work is done. When my work is done, I'll come down. But I'll come down in the arms of Jesus. I'll not come down to sit in this rubbish heap of a world. There's only two people. Two kinds of professing Christians in this tent this morning. Those who are down, living so close to the border of Egypt, so close to the world, and they will not come up. And then there are those who are up here saying, I cannot come down. I cannot. Even if I wanted to, I cannot. Even if I wanted to, I cannot. Because I've been called to a higher calling, a greater work, and I cannot, and I will not, and I won't think about it. You know, every once in a while, little thoughts come into my mind. Every once in a while, little thoughts come into my mind saying, boy, couldn't you be doing something else with your life? Do you know, I don't sit and think about that. I don't sit there and entertain those thoughts. I do not sit there and begin to look on Google what else I could possibly do with my life. I do not give it any time. When those words and thoughts come into my mind, I run them out as quickly as I can. I remind myself of what Nehemiah said, of what the Savior said, and I push on by the grace of God. And so must you. Some of you have grown weary. But I remind you what the apostle said, let us not grow weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if, if, if we faint not. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. I cannot come down. I might be sick up here, I might be on the verge of death up here. I might be barely breathing up here, but I'm not coming down. I don't care what you offer me. I don't care what you tempt me with. 
I cannot come down. May God give us that mindset. Because I believe with all of my heart that for the child of God, the best is yet to come. But I also believe that there's more darkness headed our way. And more difficulty. And more temptation. And more trials. But have no fear, my brethren. For we are doing a great work. We cannot come down. Where are you today? Where are you? Individually, answer that question. Where are you today? Down here or up there? Let's pray. Father, we ask that thy spirit would do what we cannot do, what no human voice or enthusiasm can do. Show us. Show us which crowd we belong to. Remind us. Remind us of the end result of the crowd that will not come up. May our souls take warning and heed this morning. I pray for those who are lost, Lord, whose minds are still blinded. They love this world and all that is in it. Help them, Father, this this moment to see, to see the world for what it really is. Dead and dying, perishing. Help them to see that all that they've lived for is passing away. Even this morning, even now, open their eyes that they might see life in Christ. And a work that is worth working. A calling that is far greater. I pray for thy children who are living so far below what they should be living. Father, please help them to hear the call this morning that says, get up. Come up hither. May they obey thy voice. And help thy dear children who are by thy grace walking on that highway of holiness. Thy children that by thy grace are trotting the path that Jesus did once trod himself. We pray we might be helped and kept by thy grace, that our feet may be kept firm, that we might place one foot in front of the next. Help us, we ask. For we ask it in Jesus' sake, in his name and for his sake.